Good morning. Let's begin with a prayer of illumination, which is a prayer for the light of understanding. Let's pray. Merciful God, your word is the narrow road that leads to life. Create in us hearts that are clean. Put your Holy Spirit deep within us so that we may receive your grace and pass it on to others. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Hear the good news of Jesus according to Matthew, news that is at first unsettling, but in the end, very good indeed. This is Matthew chapter 18, starting with verse 21. Then Peter came and said to Jesus, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Before we go any further, you should know that one talent equaled 15 years of work. 10,000 talents then equals 150,000 years of work. It's a ridiculous amount, and that's the point. So let's continue. When the king began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him, and as he could not pay, his lord ordered him to be sold, together with his wife and children and all his possessions, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Out of compassion for him, the Lord of that servant released him and forgave all his debt. But that same servant, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. One denarii equaled a day's work. He came upon this fellow, and seizing him by the throat, he said, Pay what you owe. Then his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you back. But he refused. Then he went and threw him into prison until he would pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had happened, They were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then his Lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. So my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This is the word of our Lord Jesus. This is 
unsettling. But in the end, it is good for us to hear. So let's begin with Peter's question. Peter's question, which is what prompts Jesus to tell this little story in the first place. Why does Peter ask the question? The question about how many times to forgive. So we need to understand there's a common religious belief among Peter's fellow Jews during that time. The belief was that God forgives three times, three times, and punishes the fourth. This belief arose from an interpretation of the prophet Amos, who repeats several times the line, for three transgressions of so-and-so, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. For three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. God forgives three times, the interpretation had it, but on the fourth repeat offense, he punishes. No more forgiveness. It's a variation of our saying, three strikes and you're out. But in this case, it's four strikes and you're out. Out of God's presence. But Peter had started to wonder whether this was really true. His personal observations of Jesus made him question this line of interpretation that God only forgives three times. At this point in the story, Peter had been following Jesus around for, the couple, for a couple years, and he had witnessed Jesus' mercy time and time again, feeding the hungry crowd, healing the sick, welcoming the children, even casting out demons from people who were historically considered enemies of the Jews, the Canaanites. Peter had also already heard Jesus explicitly teach about mercy, saying, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. In light of what Peter's already learned about Jesus, he ups the amount from three to seven. How often should I forgive Jesus? As many as seven times? On the one hand, Peter is to be commended for more than doubling the popular belief. But on the other hand, Peter still believes that forgiveness must have limits. So he wants to know what those limits are. Now, I have to believe this isn't just a theoretical question for Peter. He's not just curious. Rather, this question has teeth. <laughs> After all, Peter forms the question in personal terms. If another member of the church sins against me, Peter asks. Peter has been wronged, surely, at some point in his life. There, there have been people who have hurt him deeply. He's been wounded, perhaps by those closest to him, wounded by the very ones who should have been doing the bandaging of the wounds. Do you know something of the pain that Peter must have gone through? Has someone wronged you, perhaps in a deep and life-altering way? Has there been someone in your life who withheld from you something you needed, perhaps love? We are right there with Peter, aren't we? And seeking out some answers to the question of forgiveness. I'll forgive three times, but I don't know if I have any more in me, we admit. But then, 
Then we witness Jesus. We witness Jesus showing extraordinary mercy to others, the likes of which we've never seen before. Then we become recipients of Jesus' mercy. Jesus showering us with such love and grace, which we never deserved. And we don't know what to believe anymore, so we ask him, Jesus, my teacher, how often should I forgive the person who sinned against me? As many as seven times? Not seven times, but 77 times. Of course, Jesus is not setting a new calculation here. He is creatively commanding unlimited forgiveness for all who want to follow him. He's reversing the ancient norm of revenge, and I'm going to show you uh, in just a bit how. Revenge is how the world has operated for a long time, but it's not how justice is going to operate in God's kingdom. Remember, this is a story about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who settles accounts. Instead, In God's way of operating things, justice will be fueled by the unending flame of forgiveness. Not seven times, but 77 times. Now, why does Jesus use the number 77? Does anybody else wonder that when you read this text? This is significant, this number. It's going to take a little mental effort on your part to to understand this, so work with me here. And using the number 77, Jesus has in mind only one of the other places in the Bible that uses this number. There's maybe a few places, maybe four or five. The first place is in Genesis 4, near the very beginning of the Bible's story, right after the first murder in human history had ever taken place. A man named Cain killed his brother Abel. And then we meet a guy named Lamech. Lamech is Cain's great-great-great-grandson. And just like his ancestor Cain, Lamech kills a man too. Also like Cain, he's deeply concerned about being killed himself. Such is the cycle of revenge. So Lamech presumes to call upon God's vengeance on anybody who takes his life. This is Genesis 4, verse 24. If Cain avenged sevenfold... Truly, Lamech, 77-fold. This saying did not come from God's mouth, but from the mouth of Lamech himself. He's living with this revenge mentality. If others mess with me, God's going to repay them 77 times over. It's worth noting, however, that we get no indication that God authorized such a statement. But Jesus, in using the number 77, is changing the way things operate here. There's no place any longer for the revenge mentality of Lamech with its accompanying emotions of bitterness, resentment, and hatred. Instead, God's kingdom will be fueled by forgiveness. If we want to live in the kingdom of Jesus, we must develop the forgiveness mentality. How often should you forgive? Not seven times, but 77 times. As one scholar puts it, 
the unlimited revenge of primitive man, of Lamech, has now been given place to the unlimited forgiveness of Christians. But it's not just primitive man that views vengeance as a virtue. Come on, let's be honest here. Think about all the violence in television today and what we call popular entertainment. How many plot lines are based on this revenge mentality? Think about it. The story begins with someone being deeply wronged in one way or another. Perhaps a loved one was killed even. That someone then becomes a hero by how? By exacting revenge on the one who committed such an injustice. The hero hunts down whoever wronged him and pays him back 77 times over. And we as Christians actually applaud this stuff. But Jesus does not. Sorry, Marvel comic fans. Jesus teaches the opposite. Jesus teaches that it is more heroic to forgive than to avenge. Heroes conquer their thirst for revenge. Or as Paul said, the one who overcomes evil with good, that's the mark of the true hero for Jesus. Now to forgive, what does it mean? It simply means to let go. Did you know that there is no technical term for forgiveness in the New Testament? The word used is just the same word used if I were to uh, do this to the paper. To let go. <laughs> that's the simple use word. The simple word that's used in the New Testament. To let go. To let go of any plan of getting them back. To let go of holding this offense over their head. To let go of using it against them in the future. To forgive is to let go. And Jesus teaches that it is more heroic to let go than to seek recompense. Now, as an aside, it just, it, it, it's, ne it's necessary to say this too. Letting go does not mean letting others continue their destructive behavior against you. Jesus in no way turns a blind eye toward abuse. He's not commanding us to become doormats, letting people walk all over us. A change of behavior on the part of the abuser is necessary for reconciliation to happen. Repentance is required for a restored relationship, but not for letting go. Letting go is about letting go of one's own impulse for revenge and all the feelings that are attached to it. It's about letting go of control, refusing to take things into our own hands, and trusting God's judgment will sort things out in the end, that God's justice will put all wrongs to right in the end. So where Lamech sought vengeance 77 times over, Jesus teaches forgiveness. How many times? 77 times, or unlimited. Now, how can Jesus say all this? Does he know what it's like to be wronged, at least to the extent that we've been wronged? Now, how is this even possible, this unlimited forgiveness, especially when we think of the problematic people in our lives? You know who I'm talking about, right? 
We all have problematic people in our lives, don't we? And while we're at it, one more question. Why would we even want to try this out in the first place? Here's why, and here's how to do it. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts to his servants. That's Jesus' answer to our question. He knows we couldn't get it by a direct explanation, so he tells us a story, a special kind of story called a parable. And many of you know, a parable is a simple story drawn from everyday life that illustrates a profound point. It's a type of story that not only describes, but it invites the hearer in to the reality that is being described. Jesus here is inviting us into the reality of God's world, a reality that we can live in now. But if we're going to enter it, we've got to get on board with the way forgiveness operates in this world. To help us, Jesus tells a parable. There are two parts to this parable, and I want to propose an image for each. The image for the first part is the cross. Jesus dying on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the image for the second part is the chair, the judgment chair. When time's up, Christ will sit on this chair to judge each person according to one's deeds, the scriptures tell us. The cross and the chair. So first, the cross, and this is part one of the parable. Let's quickly recap this before we make connections to our own lives. So in this story, in this first part, there's a king who's doing some accounting work as he prepares for April 15th, so to speak. Remember, tax season's coming up, remember? He notices that one of his employees owes him 10,000 talents. Now, as I mentioned in the scripture reading, because I felt like it it was necessary to get this into our minds, this is a ridiculous amount of money. How could an individual possibly go into this much debt? But this isn't meant to be a real-life scenario. Jesus is exaggerating to make a point. But I am curious, so to put things into our currency, the man would have owed the king roughly $4.8 billion. So, the king goes to his servant and tells him he needs to pay off his debt, all $4.8 billion of it. The servant admits that he can't, obviously, so the king orders that he and his wife and kids be sent to debtor's prison until he pays it off. That would have taken him roughly 165,000 years to pay off. I hope he's in good health. But the servant is distraught. I suppose he's especially grieved by the fact that his very own family will suffer as a result of his awful financial choices. So what does he do? He begs for mercy. So the servant fell on his knees before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you back everything. And out of pity for him, other translations read, Moved with compassion for him, the Lord of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. So a few connections worth exploring here. 
First, the king. Who does the king represent? Any, any ideas, any guesses? God. Yes, God, sort of. <laughs> you see, parables, all the parables of Jesus, they're not equations, but they're analogies. This is significant. The king in the story does not perfectly reflect what God is like, okay? For example, God would never approve of one's wife and kids being sent for the faults of the father. This was actually against Jewish law at the time. So it's obvious that God is not like the king in that way, but God is like the king in that he radically forgives the debts of those who cry out to him for mercy. Second, the servant. Who does the servant represent? Any guesses? All of us. (laughs) Every last one of us. We are all indebted to God, the king, for everything. How much do we owe God? Huh? The God who created the universe? The God who fashioned us in the wombs of our mothers? Friends, if we really consider it all, all that God has done for us in our creation, sustaining us and saving us, the only conclusion is this. We are in debt up to our eyeballs. <laughs> Dave Ramsey's debt snowball method is not going to get us out of this one, not even in 10,000 years. We owe God everything. God owes us nothing. But some of us still try to pay God back. That's the third connection here. Did you notice this from the, the story? The servant seems to believe that he can actually work his way out of the debt. Have patience with me, and I will pay, and I will pay you everything, he says. All $4.8 billion on a king's servant's salary. This is the foolish attitude some of us take into our relationship with God. It's well-intentioned, but deep down it's driven by pride. We think we're too good for handouts. We want to work it off. Works righteousness is what the reformers called it. We try to earn our right standing before God by doing all the right things. And over time, we expect God to relieve us of our debts based on what we've done. Just like the servant, though, we are wholly unprepared for the magnitude of the mercy of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This leads us to our fourth and final connection for this first half of the story. Despite the immensity of our debt, God has mercy on us. Turns out, the immensity of God's mercy is far greater than the immensity of our debts toward him. In other words, you cannot out God's grace. The servant wants to work it off, but the king does him one better. He forgives the entirety of the debt, $4.8 billion, and the king decides to take the hit himself. Only but one thing is required of the servant to experience this mercy. And it's the same that's required of us to experience the mercy of God. 
Do you know what it is? We have to beg. The servant fell to his knees and said, have pity on me, have patience with me, have mercy. I suppose that most of us don't know how to beg, but we must become beggars before God to receive his mercy. Beggars don't suppose they deserve anything. They are totally and completely dependent on the mercy of another for their survival. What humility is required for the one who begs, but what reward awaits those of us who come to God as beggars. This is the first of Jesus' blesseds earlier in Matthew. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the beggars, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So it's the image of the cross that forms our first part of the parable. There is no greater place in which the mercy of God is on full display than the cross of Jesus Christ. The king, swallowing the debt of the servant in the parable, is mirrored by King Jesus, swallowing our debt on the cross. All that we owed him for making us, for forgiving us. As the message Bible renders it, God put the wrong on him who never did anything wrong, so we could be put right with God. My friends, God has absorbed the cost of our wrongdoings in his very own flesh. And so we are set free. Free to love, free to serve, free to forgive. In fact, if we really comprehend all that God has done for us, the natural consequence will be a willingness to forgive others. To let go. If it's not... If we don't have a willingness to forgive others after all that we've seen in the cross, then Jesus offers a stern warning to those of us who think we're safe. This leads us to part two of the parable. The image that makes sense of this part is the judgment chair of Christ. Verse 28. But that same servant that same man that was just forgiven $4.8 billion, as he went out, he came upon one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. It's about $8,000. Now, $8,000, still a lot of money, right? If someone owed you $8,000, chances are you'd want them to pay up. (laughs) It would impact you significantly, perhaps, if they didn't. With this amount of debt, you wouldn't just say, well, don't worry about it, that's fine, you can get me next time. The point here is that people really do owe us. I'm not just talking about money. We have been wronged, some of us more than others, and we have the scars to prove it. Some of us have been treated with unthinkable meanness, and it's understandable to feel bitter about it. The consequences of such wrongs have proved costly to you. The natural impulse in such cases is to live out of this revenge mentality, this mentality that Lamech, if you remember, had in Genesis. I don't mean we want to kill them, though sometimes we do, but we certainly want to get back at them, to give them what they deserve. 
That's only fair, we think to ourselves. And according to the kingdoms of this world, we're right, but not according to the kingdom of God. For God has designed it in such a way that God is the judge who will settle accounts at the end. So the servant, the one who had been forgiven $4.8 billion, now comes across a man who owes him 8000 and here's what he does. He grabs the man by the throat and demands, pay up now. The poor fellow, being choked to the ground, pleads with his fellow servant, have patience with me and I will pay you. It's almost the exact same expression the first servant used when begging the king for mercy. You would think it might jog his memory. Oh yeah, I was in this guy's shoes just moments ago, but I owed an exceedingly greater amount, and I was forgiven. But the thought, the thought never crosses the man's mind. Instead, what does he do? He refuses to show mercy. He throws his fellow servant into debtor's prison until he can work it off and pay the very last penny. Sounds fair, right? After all, the man did owe him $8,000. But the king gets word of it. And how does he feel about it? (laughs) Angry. He's furious. Friends, do not be mistaken. God is furious when we refuse to forgive others. You wicked servant, the king shouts. Then the king gives him the exact same treatment that he gave the one who owed him. This this goes back to Jesus' earlier teaching. You'll receive the same judgment you give, Jesus says. Whatever you deal out will be dealt back to you. And this is what happens to the servant. He receives the judgment that he gives. In anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. Then come these chilling words, if we're paying attention. These unnerving words from the mouth of Jesus. So my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Remember, he's not talking to unbelievers here, but to Peter and the disciples. Blessed are the merciful, For they will receive mercy, Jesus teaches. And the reverse is also true. Unblessed are the unmerciful. Or as Jesus puts it at the end of the Lord's Prayer, if you forgive others their sins, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your sins. God wants to make things right with you from the mercy of the cross. He really does. But for those who refuse the way of the cross, the judgment chair of Christ awaits. Let me conclude by admitting that this is not an easy teaching to understand in light of the full witness of Scripture. To tell you the truth, I've been wrestling with it all week. There's much I don't know. But here's what I do know. When a person truly experiences and grasps on a personal level the mercy of God for them revealed in the cross of Christ. When someone truly gets this, the result, ten times out of ten, is a growing mercy within that person for others. 
receiving divine forgiveness yields human forgiveness to others. No exceptions. For such a person, there is full assurance of eternal salvation. Their justification at the cross ought to give them utmost confidence and even joy when the time comes for the judgment at the chair. After all, it is their Lord and friend who sits on the chair. But where there is no mercy or compassion or forgiveness for others, there is serious cause for concern. Even if the person has said the sinner's prayer, even if the person hardly misses church, there's reason to doubt that such a person has ever truly grasped for themselves the mercy of God revealed in the cross of Christ, if they do not forgive others, that is. Such people may claim to believe in God, but God responds to them the way James says it in his letter. Even the demons believe and shudder. To such people, Jesus warns about the judgment at the chair. But the purpose for warning is to turn them back to the mercy of the cross. <laughs> what would truly be unmerciful for Jesus would be to not give any warning signs, right? Imagine you're driving along a road. There's no warning signs. You get to a pl place, you fall off the road, right? That would not be merciful. If there's a cliff off the end of the road, the merciful thing to do is to put up a warning sign. Jesus warns about the judgment at the chair with the intent of turning us back to the mercy of the cross. So let us all take heart. Let us heed Jesus' words of caution by fixing our eyes on Jesus and his cross. It is there that he was wronged. It is there that he suffered at the hands of evildoers. It is there that he revealed both the mercy and judgment of God, both the love and holiness of God. The judge was judged in our place. The cycle of vengeance was broken at last. The sin of the world swallowed whole. It is from the cross that he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Let us go and do likewise. Amen.